Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Is a 223 Remington a suitable deer hunting cartridge? And do you need a 56 millimeter objective on your scope in order to see your target? <laughs> We're going to find out the answers to those and a lot more on this episode of RSO Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to RSO Podcast. Again, we have some questions from our readers and uh, fans on YouTube. We're going to see if we can't answer those. And my lovely assistant also known as my wife, has compiled some questions for us. So let's see what we've got today. The first one is from someone uh, labeled Shah6MM, Shah6mm, it looks like. And he asks, Ron, how do you choose which cartridge or rifle? I know you have some nice rifles if you've demonstrated several to us. So when you have a deer hunt lined up, how do you find uh, which one to take? Did you think it's kind of hard to pick one? Gosh, absolutely is. I, you know, this is a, a kind of a modern age problem, isn't it? Which rifle should I take? It used to be, I wish I had a rifle to take. Well, we have an embarrassment of riches in this country. And uh, it does become a little bit challenging to decide, yeah, should I take my favorite rifle or should I try a different one or a new one or one I haven't used for a long time? Crazy, but these are some of the problems we wrestle with. And I do have a difficult time deciding which one to take because so many of our cartridges and rifles for deer hunting are more than adequate. I mean, we can obviously choose a relatively low range 30-30 for woods hunting um, and a long reach 300 magnum of some kind for big country or bigger game, you know, but in general, it's suitable for deer hunting. Do you enjoy carrying a bolt action or a lever action or a single shot or an auto loader or a pump action? It's just so many things that, that one has to deal with. But I think ultimately, if you've hunted for many years and you have a, say, a favorite rifle, it's probably because there's some sort of a tradition associated with it. Maybe it was your dad's rifle or your uncle's or your mother-in-law's or somehow has a connection like that. Or it's the first one you used and you took your first deer with it. Or maybe it's just a rifle that seems to fit you better than the others. It might not be your favorite caliber, but it might just fit and feel so good that you just feel like you can hit anything with it. And I've had some rifles like that. It's sort of like, I always call them guided missiles. When I make a shot with them, I just have supreme confidence that it's going to work. And it's probably because I know the rifle well and it fits me well. Um, and it just seems to work. So which one do I choose? That is always the dilemma. Now, you're going to hate me for this, guys. But in my line of work, I often don't get to choose. The choosing is done for me by a magazine editor or somebody says you need to take this rifle and see what it's like and give us a report. So I'm borrowing rifles quite often and shooting those. And 
uh, other outdoor writer friends and I will whine about, gosh, we never get to use our own rifles anymore. I mean, I've got a sweet little 25 out 6 at home, and I haven't used that thing for like 10 years because I'm always going on these hunts with other people's rifles. <laughs> Cry me a river, huh? <laughs> so now we're getting down to what am I going to actually choose for my favorite rifle, and I'm going to absolutely positively tell you I don't know because <laughs> I don't have an absolute favorite. I have many favorites. And I am frustrated when I can't use all of them. So I think I do what most of us do is to at least get out and practice with them. Get to the range, build some new loads for them, or just go out and shoot a few targets at different ranges. Wander around and pick off cans and rocks and steel gongs and whatever you want to shoot at. And then it comes down to the deer hunt. You just sort of have to toss a, toss a coin or just pick one and live with it. Last year, I wanted to use my 25-06 single shot. It's a beautiful Dakota Model 10 that I hadn't used for years and years and years. And I've even toyed with the idea of using nothing but it for an entire season. Hunt pronghorn with it and whitetail and mule deer and even elk. Uh, maybe even a moose if I had a tag. I never get around to that. So at least I got to hunt one deer with it last year. And boy, was it fun. But I'd like to carry that rifle up and down the Elk Mountain some days. And then I have a beautiful uh, 284 Winchester in a ultralight arms model 20 lightweight rifle i love that rifle because it's so light so beautifully conforming to me it just fits me and it's one of those rifles when you you throw it up it's almost like a fine over and under shotgun it just comes to your eye naturally and it's right on target every time and i love that 284 winchester as a balanced round i've used it for sheep and elk and whitetails and mule deer and it's just a great all-round cartridge so, you know, if push came to shove and somebody uh, forced me to keep just one rifle, <laughs> it would be awfully hard to part with that one. <laughs> but there are many more, so I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> Thanks for the question. It sure makes a, a guy think, doesn't it? All right, this is from Russell uh, of YouTube. He said, I'm uh, wanting to buy a loophole scope for a 30-30 lever action and also a scope for my AR-556. That would be the 5.56 NATO cartridge, pretty much the same thing as the 223 Remington. That one has an 18-inch barrel. I don't know what to buy. The lever action will be used to hunt deer, and the AR will be just for shooting for distance. Now, I don't know if that's shooting game at distance or varmints at distance or targets, but uh, we'll just see what we can come up with here. Obviously, I'm not going to tell you that you absolutely have to get scope X, Y, or Z. There's so many things to consider in scopes. But I can tell you that in a 30-30 lever action, you're working with a medium-range cartridge. So you don't need a lot of magnification. You're not going to be shooting at 300 and 400 yards. Most of your shots will be inside of 200. After 200, that bullet just starts to lose too much energy and drop too much to really be effective. So with a scope, you can help the 30-30 go a little bit farther if you know your drops and your deflections in the wind. So you could consider cranking that power up to perhaps eight. But I think a lot of guys are really satisfied with a straight four. It's simple, it's small, it's light, and it's durable. Four uh, X on top of Oh, uh, any lever action 3030, whether it's a Marlin or a Henry or a Winchester 94, or even a Savage. Gosh, 3030 uh, is what's limiting you, not the lever action. So look for something in that fixed power range of about four. You could go with three or two and a half or something. If you want a variable, keep your powers low there too. Go from a two to seven or two and a half to eight, something like that. 
I kind of like the idea of a variable. If you really work with a lot, you're going to be able to take advantage of some longer shots and also see through some holes in the timber. Sometimes you got a shot of a bedded deer that you've glassed up, but you're not quite sure where there might be a limb in the way. And if you can crank that power up a little bit, you might see that stuff. So something to consider. But I would keep it small and light. Don't get a great big objective out front. It's going to unbalance that rifle. One of the sweet things about lever action rifles is how nicely balanced they are, short and handy. You want to keep it that way, so a smaller scope. And with low magnification, you don't need a big objective anyway. Um, uh, 4X, even an 8X, 8 by 36, plenty. I use a 2.5 to 8X scopes a lot. And they have a 36 millimeter objective, and I've never had any trouble getting my game with those. Now, as for that uh, AR in 5.56, shooting for distance i don't know how far you're shooting so you might want a little more magnification here you might want to shoot some really small targets that distance so there you need magnification so something up to about 15 maybe 18 power you might even get up into 2024 depending on how far you want to shoot but 18 inch barrel suggests you're not reaching for maximum long distance nor will that 5.56 shoot all that far and it's just a pretty light bullet that starts to lose it after about 500 yards. So I think you're going to probably be doing pretty well with a 3.5 to 18, uh, something in that range. And you don't have to worry too much about durability on it. Uh, light little recoiling cartridges like the 223 are not stressing your scope the way a bigger cartridge would. I found that once you get over about the power of a 30 out 6, you need to start considering durability in your scope just from the repeated recoil jarring things. Hardly any recoil in a 223, so you might save a little bit of money by not having to buy a really rugged, durable, heavy scope. So uh, that's what you want to look for. Lots of great brands out there, of course, so you're on your own when it comes to that. But look through the scopes if you can. Compare them side by side. For some reason, some scopes just seem to fit our eyes better than others, or we see better through them, whether it's actually the scope that's uh, has a better optical quality or just happens to match up with our eyes a little better. It's really hard to say, but it sure helps to look through them. Okay, now this one is from Jeffrey. He's also responding to something he saw on a YouTube channel of mine. He says, a very nice rifle. I wonder what it was. <laughs> um, I guess it doesn't much matter. He says, I have a question for you. My daughter is 22. She wants to get into hunting. She shot some of my rifles. She wants a one that uh, does it all. Oh, she's looking for that one rifle for everything. All right. I can get behind that. My thoughts are she should get a 308 Winchester and maybe the 7mm 08. I would appreciate your opinion. Thanks and God bless. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. And as most people who know me fairly well will say, Ron's not going to go for the 308 Winchester, but I might surprise you on this one. The 308 Winchester and the 7mm 08 Remington are essentially the same cartridge shooting different diameter bullets. The 308 Winchester obviously shoots a 30 caliber bullet, 0.308. All they did was take that neck it down to hold a 0.284 bullet. There's your 7mm 08 Remington. Same powder capacity. What does that mean? The 708 bullet's going to shoot a little bit flatter. The velocities will be about the same because the powder capacity is about the same. But because you have a skinnier bullet, it drags less in the wind, so it maintains more energy downrange. It does not drop as fast, and it does not deflect as much in the wind. This would be comparing it to the same weight bullet in a 308. And I'm thinking 150 grain because that's a common weight bullet for both of them. 
So you're going to get a little bit better ballistics performance out of the 7mm 08, but the 308 Winchester is just easier to find. There's more rifles chambered for it. There's more ammunition available in it. More variety in that ammunition, more bullets to choose from, lots of match-grade stuff if she wants to start really shooting precisely at targets. 708, a little harder to find. Much as I love it, I got to admit, it's just not nearly as popular as a 308. And because of volume sales, you can often find some 308 ammunition for a lot less money than the 708s. A lot of people report they have trouble finding 7mm 08. I'm a hand loader, so I don't worry about it. If your daughter is not, she's going to be buying factory ammunition. I'm going to vote for a 308 Winchester on this one. All right, this one is Zelijo or Zelijo. It's a Z-E-L-I-J-K-O. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Forgive me if I screwed it up. He wonders why I don't make a video on the 8x57 Mauser, the 857mm Mauser. Do you hate that round, he asks. <laughs> no, I don't hate that round. I'm just not that familiar with the round. I don't know that I've ever even fired one. Now, the 857 Mauser was actually not created by Peter Paul Mauser, the man who invented the Model 98 Mauser rifle and the 7x57 Mauser cartridge. That was his. But the 8x57 was a German military invention or creation. They started uh, designing that, I think, in 1888. And that became the standard for their military rifles through World War I and even World War II. So it's 8 millimeter, and it started off shooting a 0.318 inch diameter bullet. And then they changed it to a 0.323 inch diameter bullet. And this is what makes it a little bit confusing and weird for everybody, especially Americans who aren't that familiar with it. The Germans got familiar with the system fairly early on. Exactly why they went with that wider bullet, I don't know. But you have to be careful. Some of the older rifles are going to be needing a, a narrower bullet. And these days, I'm not even sure if they load it that way. They have some letter designations behind 8x57. One will be the 8x57J, I think it is, and the other one is JS. And I believe the JS stands for the ones that shoot the .323-inch diameter larger bullets. So essentially, you've got a 32 caliber there. Uh, 318, I'm not sure if that's a 31 caliber or a 32 caliber. <laughs> you got to be probably a 31. So there's some confusion. Now, what does that 8 millimeter Mauser produce or do uh, as far as a hunting cartridge? Pretty close to a 308 Winchester in performance. Obviously, the bullets are a little bit wider, um, but the velocities are about the same. So if you're shooting the same weight bullets, you'll probably get similar performance, but you can go with heavier bullets in the 8mm Mauser, obviously, because they're wider, 0.323. So that's what I can tell you about that. Um, most Americans just never bothered with it. In fact, when a lot of the soldiers came back from the wars with their captured souvenir Mauser rifles and they couldn't find 8mm Mauser ammunition, they had them changed or rechambered to a hybrid at 30 out six eight millimeter so that barrel was already for an eight millimeter they just took the 30 out six and acted up had a gunsmith rechamber it to fit that and they were shooting an eight millimeter out six and it was pretty popular for quite a few years in the middle of the 20th century all right good question now let's move on to what we have here this guy's name on youtube is i've gone away <laughs> well i hope you've come back because here's your question well, I want to see you talk about the Uberti Courtney stocking rifle. It comes in 303 British and 4570 government. Yeah, it does. The Courtney stocking rifle 
uh, from Uberti was, oh gosh, I think it was three years ago I saw that as a new release at the SHOT Show. And I liked it right away because it's a falling block single shot. But when I looked at it, I thought, man, this looks a lot like Browning's falling block, 1885 Winchester. John Moses Browning down in Ogden, Utah, designed this beautiful single shot rifle and he was selling it quite well, making them one at a time in his little shop. And Winchester found out about it, came out there, saw it, tried it, took it back, bought the patent from him and tweaked it a little bit and came out with it a few years later, called it the a 1885 um, single shot uh, falling block. And it was available in a low wall and a high wall for different power cartridges and stuff. And it was just one of the finest rifles of its era. So I think that uh, Uberti has taken that basic rifle, tweaked it a little bit and changed it somewhat. And then obviously chambered in the 303 British and now the 4570 government. The 303 British was the British Enfield cartridge in World War One. They actually started shooting that in the 1890s, I believe. It was used in the Boer Wars in South Africa. So a gentleman by the name of Frederick Courtney Salou was a great explorer in Africa, and he shot a 303, I'm sure, and many others, but that was kind of one of his standards. And he had a falling block rifle, which was made in Scotland by Farkharzen. The Farkharzen falling block was kind of known as the falling block action. Very sweet, light, handy, simple action, very strong. And that's what uh, Slew was famous for shooting. And if you want to read some great books, try to find out. Uh, gosh, I forgot the name of it. I think it's a, no, that's Bell's title. I've forgotten the name. I'm sorry. But just look up Frederick, Frederick Courtney Slew. He was an early explorer from around 1870 into the early 1900s. And then he was finally shot during World War I while he was leading some scout troops in Africa. At the time, there were two opposing countries. One was a, a colony of Britain. The other was a colony of Germany. So that's how he was involved in the action over there. And he got picked off by a sniper. And it was a major loss because he was an officer and a gentleman and a heck of a naturalist and hunter. And they have Nature reserves over there named after him now. He was a revered figure. So that's why they picked Courtney for the name of this stalking rifle. Single shot, falling block, stalking rifle, Courtney, it all comes together. The 303 uh, British cartridge, uh, it's, it's kind of an oddball because it's a 31 caliber. It takes a .311 or .310 inch diameter bullet, a little bit wider than our 308s, but they may be chambering that for a 308 bullet. They'll sometimes do that with the 303, uh, but... They're starting to make more ammunition for it now. It's just kind of a hand loader's proposition. You don't find a lot of options in 303 British cartridges. But the Canadians use it a lot because, of course, they were part of Britain and they had those rifles up there, lots of Enfields and different things that they were shooting. And I think they still use it quite a bit and they take moose with it and everything else. So, And then, of course, in 4570, that was a U.S. official military cartridge from 1873 on until around 1890s when the uh, 3040 Craig took over for just about 10 years, and that was out. But uh, 4570 is revered as a big 45 by golly, shooting 300-grain bullets. And they don't go all that fast, but they have a thump to them, and they're pretty popular with a lot of folks for close-range shooting. I wouldn't think they would be ideal in a single-shot rifle, but if you like to get close, you like to stock, you like a big thump, big bullet, not a bad option. The rifle could certainly handle it. All right. 
who's next? This is Brad, and he is responding to something he read on Ron Spomer Outdoors, one of our blogs. Hey, Ron, whenever I hear someone talk about whitetail hunting with a 223 or a 22250, they always seem to be the hunters who prefer neck shots. What are your thoughts on neck shots? Hmm. Well, I tell you what, neck shots are a little bit risky. I've tried several of them over the years and successfully. In fact, I took my first elk with a neck shot. But then I had to run him down and get him another one. <laughs> and this is the problem with the neck shots. What often happens is if you miss the spine, and I have a heck of a time judging where in that neck the spine actually lays. Is it right in the middle? Is it a little bit high? Is it a little bit low? Is it... Uh, so if you don't call it just right and you stun the animal by missing the spine but coming close enough so that the bullet's impact shock stuns the animal, knocks him out, it's kind of like a punch in a boxing match, there's a great chance that that animal will recover and run off. And I have seen this happen several times. So you always have to be ready to shoot again. So I will watch an animal that has been neck shot for any sign of movement and for instance, you can see it breathing sometimes. If you have a good power magnification on your scope, you'll notice that it's still breathing. That means you've knocked him out and you, you need to give him a finisher. I've had mule deer jump up and run off. I've had pronghorns jump up and run off. I've had whitetail jump up and run off. And that elk I already mentioned, yeah, um, neck shots will definitely drop an animal and often kill him right on the spot if you hit the central nervous system. But if you only come close, then you've got that issue of them jumping up. So I like to choose my neck shots when I know that the animal will be in position when it falls, that I can put a finisher in it. So it's not going to be an extremely long range shot. It's not going to be in heavy cover. Suit yourself, though. Some people just absolutely dote on that neck shot and love it, especially because it doesn't ruin a lot of great meat. I like neck meat. I grind mine up for sausage and burger, but a lot of folks would rather shoot the neck with a lot of gristle in it and bone and stuff and lose a little meat there than on the shoulder or something. So suit yourself on that one. But if you take the neck shot, boy, be ready. Something I definitely advise against are head shots. These, this is a shot that a lot of the two, two, three shooters like too. Uh, put it in the ear and you've taken the brain out, central nervous system, and he's dead right there. And it's a, a humane shot. But if you don't hit the brain, it's anything but a humane shot. And I have seen some badly injured deer in the head area. Why does this happen? Well, it's a small target for one thing. And for another, it moves quickly. You're lined up on that deer. Let's say it was it's browsing and it hears something and it throws its heads up, head up and it looks. And you take that shot just when it decides it needs to turn this way or that way. That head can move so quickly, bobbing up and down. That's the first thing to move on a deer. Whereas the chest, that big 10 to 12 inch vital zone in the chest is just there. That's the last thing to go. Uh, so I always prefer that shot. It's just the, the best bet. Larger target, a lot of vital tissue there. And if you miss it by an inch or four in one direction or another, you've still got good heart and lung and you're going to take your animal. So I stay away from the headshots too. All right, here is one from someone named Cracked. Cracked is... Uh, Asking me something about optics. Oh, I had something on scopes here recently that we reprinted, I think, from a blog on ronsboomeroutdoors.com. And I was describing how scopes work and talking about brightness and all the rest of it. And this guy does not like what I had to say, apparently. He says, I must strongly, strongly, with capital letters, disagree with you. With all due respect, I appreciate that. Thank you. 
This information is just bad. Ooh, I hate to get out bad information there, Cracked. Might I suggest you look past all the allure of the Gilded Ring brand, a fine optical sight with 30mm tube and a 50-56mm to 56 millimeter objective will, capital letters, outperform what you describe in every category except for weight and size. As with any discipline, a hunter must train how to prepare for and shoot in low-light situations. Well, I'm not sure you have to train for low-light situations if you don't shoot in low-light situations, but I get your point. He likes a fixed 8 by 56 millimeter scope. That's the European standard for decades, and it's that way for a good reason. Okay, I can go on and honestly wax poetic on the matter, but come on, Ron, this is bunk information. Ooh, <laughs> slap me upside the head. Bunk information's bad. No, this is, uh, I think you may be overreacting a little bit here, Cracked, and misinterpreting what I say. I'm not saying that your 8 by 56 millimeter scope isn't wonderfully bright. What I said in my descriptions of scopes and how they work and where brightness comes from is that brightness is determined first by the diameter of the objective lens divided by the power at the eyepiece. If you have a variable scope, for instance, and let's say it's a 10 by 56, if you divide 10 into 56, you end up with 5.6 millimeters. That refers to the diameter of the exit pupil coming out of that scope's eyepiece. And that is the little circle of light you can see. If you hold a scope out like this at arm's length and look in it in the eyepiece, you're going to see a little bright circle. That's the exit pupil. That's where all the light of your image is coming from. And that has to match up with your pupil. So if your eye is dilated to 7 millimeter and you have an 8 by 56 millimeter scope, 8 goes into 56, 7 millimeters. And that fits your pupil perfectly. So all of the light coming out of that little 7 millimeter exit pupil pours through your pupil, hits the retina in the back of your eye, and you've got maximum brightness. If that 7 millimeter exit pupil were 10 millimeters, you would have a rim around your 7 that would be wasted. You cannot take advantage of that extra bright light. It just bounces off of your iris. If it's smaller, if the exit pupil in the eyepiece of the scope is only four millimeters, you're pouring all of that light into your eye, but you've got an extra rim of pupil area that's been dilated to take in more light, and there's no light there to take in because the exit pupil isn't big enough. So it's nice to be able to match the two. And this is what you get when you divide the power into the diameter of the objective lens. So yes, objective lenses are bigger. They let more light in. Magnification makes it darker, lets less light out. So there's a couple of ways you can get a brighter scope. Turn your power down is the easiest. Go from eight to four and holy macro, you know, you're going to like double the exit pupil diameter. But then you're going to have a smaller target. So if you're hunting at night and he's out there at 200, 250 yards, and it's just the last little speck of light to see, you're going to want what this gentleman cracked has got here in his eight by 56. But I think he's making an argument against what I said about main tube diameter. In that article of mine, I mentioned that the main tube diameter, whether it's one inch or 30 millimeter or 34 millimeters, does not make the image usably brighter. How can that be? Well, it's because there are erector lenses inside and they're pretty small and they're usually smaller than the biggest millimeter exit pupil that you might want. So you're really not losing any light there. If you get them big enough, to transmit more light, you're still hampered by the objective diameter divided by the magnification. 
that does not change based on the diameter of that scope's main tube. The erector tube inside has got its lenses in it, and you're still going to get the same size exit pupil, objective lens divided by magnification. So that's why I say it really doesn't matter if you've got a 30 millimeter main tube or a one inch diameter main tube. It's that objective in the eyepiece. So why is he thinking that his 30 millimeter or 34 millimeter tube, oh, he's got a 30 millimeter. Why does he think that's so much brighter? Probably because he has the highest quality scope you can buy. It's a Euroscope, I'm imagining. It's probably a Zeiss or a Leica or a Swarovski or a Miopta. I mean, they just make super bright scopes, but it's not just because they've got a 30 millimeter tube. What makes scopes really, really bright are the treatments they put on the lenses, anti-reflection coatings. Now, what's so significant about that? Bare glass, optical glass, will reflect about 4% of the light that strikes it. And then another 4% gets lost when it comes out. This is, has to do with the way light bends and works when it goes through a thicker medium. Same thing as sticking an arrow in the water and you look at its bent. You're bending the light because it slows down in that heavier material. It's, it's weird stuff light is. It's traveling at 186,000 miles per second. <laughs> And when you go through glass, it slows down. And when it comes out of the glass, it speeds back up again to the same. <laughs> Can you believe that? This is weird stuff, but this is what we're working with. At any rate, I'm getting off on a tangent here. <laughs> the important thing is those anti-reflection coatings. What they do is they knock that reflection loss back. They can cut it in half. A single layer of an anti-reflection coating like magnesium sulfate can reduce the light reflection loss by half. You put another layer on it, you cut it in half again and again and again. And that's what they call multi-layered anti-reflection coatings for brightness. They increase the transmission of the light through the instrument. So a rifle scope is going to have one, two, three, four, five, maybe seven, maybe nine different lenses inside of it. And if each one of those lenses is going to lose some light to reflection if you don't have the anti-reflection coatings. So there's a lot more going on in scope brightness than just the size of the objective. You've got to get those beautiful coatings. And I'm sure that 8 by 56 this gentleman is shooting has got all of the best of the best. And that's why it looks so bright, not because it has a 30 millimeter tube. Now, he's also saying that he's shooting at last light, not just last light, but I know in Europe, a lot of countries over there let you shoot at night. They hunt by moonlight. So yeah, you want as bright a scope as you can get. Most of us are not going to have our pupils dilate to seven millimeters until it's dark. So in the States, sunset, half hour after sunset, maybe in some places it's an hour after, it's still fairly bright. So over here in the States, we really don't need that super brightness because we just don't hunt under those really, really dark conditions. What I suggest is that you test the scope under low light situations and see what you can see. What I have noticed with a lot of my scopes, if I've got good anti-reflection coatings on them, is that I can take a scope at, say, 8 power with a 40 to 44 millimeter objective, which doesn't give you a huge exit pupil, but it's got all those good anti-reflection coatings in it, and I target a rock up on the hill 100 yards away at, let's say, 11 o'clock at night under a full moon. I can see the rock, and I can see my black crosshair on that rock. I probably could see it brighter if I had an 8 by 56 but it's more than enough for what I do, so I don't have to carry around that great big scope. And that's the other part of this. 
An 8 by 56 is a huge scope, and you've got to lift your head off the stock most likely to see through it. So it's not what you would call a quick setup. If you're a hunter and you're gl- you're glassing, stalking, still hunting, hiking, you got a heavy rifle with a heavy scope on it. It's not balanced very neatly. It's just not fun to carry. And then when you throw it up quickly, you probably can't find it. You got to lift your head and look through it. What this gentleman is likely doing is sitting on a stand, a Hochsetz. Over in Germany, Austria, most of these countries, they put blinds or stands up and they call them high seats, Hochsetz. Even if they're on the ground, they still call them Hochsetz. At any rate, that's a great place to use a big scope like that because you're not carrying it around. It's sitting there, probably supported on a beam across the stand someplace, and you've got time to pick your shots. So use what works for you. Nothing against a big scope like that if that's what you need to do your job. And apparently Cracked does because he says he's got to have that scope in those low light situations and it works well for him. More power to you, dude. All right. That's the situation on scopes. Now I'm going too long here. We're going to have to ring off. So I want to thank you all for listening in and watching if you're looking on YouTube. Thanks to our patrons for helping support the channel. That really helps, guys, and we really appreciate it. Give us a thumbs up. Subscribe if you can. Look for us also on Ron Spomer Outdoors' YouTube channel where we cover ballistics and guns and shooting and a lot more detailed stuff. And uh, check us out at ronspomeroutdoors.com for all those blogs on the website. Till next time, this is Ron Spomer signing off. Hunt honest and shoot straight. want to succeed you want to fish you want to be one of the greatest tune in to west marines life on the water presented by costa custom boats every saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m eastern on waypoint tv a life that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.